The city of Cornerbrook has a, has a stranglehold on my mind. Just not because I was born here, and not because I've pastored here for a few years now. But I really love this place. It's the place that I've chosen to call home. And it started out that, that way, but for a different reason as well. On November 22, 1972, my mother's parents were driving their little orange Fiat through the rock cut near Cornerbrook Stream, and they ran into a whiteout. They were loaded down, the car was loaded down with preserves and suitcases and personal items. They were on their way to Port Basque, where we lived at the time, to live with us for the winter. And from the other direction, a man driving, uh, and some of you will remember this kind of car, in those days it was huge, a Plymouth Fury 3. It was a big car. He also entered the White Oak. He was returning to Cornerbrook after attending a labor meeting. He struck my grandparents' car, and both were instantly killed. The next day after the police broke the news to us, I saw the car and saw what a mess it was. Jam and bits of pickled beets and things like that, vegetables that my grandfather had grown. And my mom lost her, both her parents on the same day and I lost my maternal grand grandparents. Just recounting it gives me a bit of a sickening feel brings a deep sadness to the surface of my mind, but it's a part of my memories of Cornerbrook. Other people who'd attended the same union meeting as the man who ran into my grandparents said that he'd been drinking throughout that day and very likely, based on what they said, was impaired. My grandparents were in their 68th year. And our family up to that point in time had gone through a considerable amount of work to provide a new environment for them. And I don't know if a family ever recovers from that kind of shock. And my, my Twitter handle and one of my email addresses reflects the name that my grandfather had. You see, our mind has the ability to remember things that affect us in vivid detail. You can recall far more than any computer, and you can call it up faster regardless of what you might think of yourself. Your personal search engine is on parallel. More than that, you not only bring up hard data from your memory, but you bring it up with feelings and emotions that are attached to it, like I just did. We're set apart in the animal kingdom for our deep attachments to each other. When one child, when the second child comes along, we don't drive away the first one. A lot of animals do. I've never, I've never heard tell of one computer developing a love for another computer. Mother animals in the animal kingdom wean their young and begin to process all, all, all over again. On the contrary, sometimes it seems with regard to printers and computers, they actually hate each other. And you've found this to be true. Two different brands of computers will certainly hate each other. And they live in a constant state of warfare. Like my computer and my printer have an uneasy truce. 
every second day, every second day, my printer tells me that it's not connected to my, to my printer. It sort of divorces my computer two or three times a week, usually at the times when I need it the worst. You know that you are more energy efficient than a computer as well. The watts of power used by a human brain when it's, in deep, when it's engaged in deep thought, 14 watts is what's estimated you personally use. The watts that are required to operate an IBM personal computer or other kinds for that matter, it can be up to 360. So you should get some kind of a stamp of approval. Our technological umbilical cord, which we affectionately refer to as WWW, or World Wide Web, actually is filled with harmful viruses and Trojan horses and worms that we have to be protected from. One time, you know, you'd say, my computer's got a bug. It's worse than that now. It's malicious. And as humans, we form attachments for life. And we're devastated when our family units are broken and when relationships are broken. And our unique spirit spirituality is at the core of our great differences. I think it differentiates us from other creatures. I think we underestimate at times the, the spiritual component of, of our lives. And I think that's why spiritual rebirth, as we call it, is so incredibly important. And when the Apostle Paul looked across the Roman world, he saw a mighty army of Roman legions holding the world together in an uneasy peace, which, which historians call the Pax Romana. He saw Greek philosophy holding the world in confusion. He saw mystery religions that were leaving people empty. But he also saw the liberating power of the Spirit of God unleashing humanity from the several forms of bondage it suffered and setting them free by the forgiveness of Christ. Through the process that we sang about in some of these hymns this morning, some of them sound brutal and garish. Some of them have all kinds of terrible, terrible scenes in it. But crucifixion was never an easy thing. And for someone to die a sacrificial death, being punished by Rome, was brutal in the extreme. And some of the songs talked about that this morning. Now let me give you a modern translation of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. The world is on principle. It's dog-eat-dog -dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that, that way, never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that, in, that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Now you'll recognize that from a piece of scripture that's rather common when you look at it in some other version. Paul saw the world through, through military eyes. 
He saw Christ as a, as a conquering Savior. And C.S. Lewis agreed with Paul's concepts when he wrote in 1952, enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. Lewis says Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And it's no mistake that we see the world as a battlefield and ourselves as the Salvation Army uh, teaches us or reminds us, we see ourselves sometimes in military sense as Christian soldiers. Jesus made it very clear that he didn't come to bring peace, but he said, I've come to bring a sword. Jesus himself said his mission is to destroy the works of the enemy, quote, unquote. People line up and take sides whenever you present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our text suggests scenes of battle. But it's not conventional warfare as we understand it. Satan fights dirty, the scripture says. He's a terrorist. The soldiers wear no uniforms. They're unpredictable. We can see buses, trains, or buildings being hit and debris flying. We smell the gunpowder. We hear missiles screaming overhead. When we talk about warfare, we visualize people being carried away on stretchers and being placed in makeshift morgues. There are suggestions of prisoners of war, but I see it in a little more intellectual sense today, a little more of a spiritual sense. Satan battles for your mind. His armies live among us and look like us until we, I guess we, we envision and we saw a few years ago in Boston, a bomb detonates in a knapsack and everybody gets terrorized all of a sudden. And I know the Boston Marathon was just run very recently. How many of you feel a little hint of nervousness whenever you step onto an aircraft? I'm not here this morning to try and terrorize you any further. See, when Paul writes 2 second, second, second Corinthians 10, his points of reference become clear. He talks about the threefold defenses of an ancient city. They fortified themselves with high, thick walls, and the walls formed a protective barrier to invaders. Secondly, Paul points out that the walls had high towers that were strategically placed to allow vision from a distance and to give them the advantage of height so that they made anyone below them their victim. And thirdly, the walls were manned by seasoned soldiers, veterans of military training, and experienced people in warfare. And from these walls, commanders would warn others of attack. They would shout their orders and look for weaknesses as they spotted them from a high vantage point. The ancient city could be defended, but even the best of cities sometimes fell. In order to capture a city, three objectives had to be accomplished. And I want to make the transference from an ancient city to our, to our own world. The invading army had to get through or over the walls that were erected. The enemy had to nullify the defenses of the towers. And thirdly, the military leaders had to be killed or captured. You kill or capture the leadership and you almost assure yourself victory. And that's the scene Paul has in mind when he looks at 2 Corinthians 10 or when he writes it. But the battlefield is not an ancient city. 
It's his way of describing it. It's our minds. That becomes the battleground. When we were not Christians, our minds were enemy-held territories. We were blinded by the enemy. We did his bidding automatically or we just went with the flow. Salvation is God's light shining into a personal prison and granting light and freedom to serve the one who Paul says has delivered us from bondage. Meeting Christ is receiving brand new life. You see, people will not be reasoned into abandoning their lofty speculations and their vain imaginations, as Paul puts it. These things have to be torn down. Paul says they have to be demolished through spiritual, war spiritual warfare. And since they were erected by the power of an enemy, only the power of God who is greater is going to change people. Understand one important fact of the Christian life. The enemy of your soul and mind does not want to give up one inch of territory. He wants you enslaved. He wants you bound and fettered. He wants us to continue every habit. He wants us to hold fast. I heard hold fast in a different way this morning, Kathy. And I think we need to sing that right at the end again today. He wants us to hold fast to every destructive aspect of our past. He wants to make our lifestyle our prison. And perhaps that's why people who receive the Lord later in life have more struggles than average. Because Satan seems to have more of their past to bring against them. It's also why our youth need to be, need to be grounded and and. and firm in their understanding of the Word of God and, and entrenched in a Christian lifestyle. You do that when you're young, Satan has nothing to hang around your neck. And so if you can possibly do it, keep the skeletons out of your closets. And get rid of the ones that are there. That's why Paul states in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, you, you remember these words, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, the Spirit is never satisfied to leave, to leave our minds as He finds them. When the Spirit of God transforms us, He launches a major offensive on the, not just the way that we live, but the way that we think. He's got to invade and conquer because the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not just a fancy term that Baptists use. It has to be exercised. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is not something that we just call one of our distinctives. It is something that needs to be true and real for every child of God. We can never call Jesus our King if we live under the rule of someone else. So let me briefly give you this morning three things that Christ will do. The first thing he does is that he assaults the fortress. First line of defense was the wall. Every one of us reasons a certain way. You and I have patterns of thinking. Some of these patterns can even become predictable. So much so that someone looks at you at some point in time, maybe your spouse, and says, I can read you like a book. 
patterns can become so deeply ingrained that we no longer even have to think about a response to some things. It seems to come automatically. We just act based on the well-worn way of doing things. And that's the mind's wall. And that's why I chose the title I did. God has to take us, and here's the task, God has to take us out of our mind and give us the mind of the Lord or the mind of the Spirit. That's warfare. And we're the battleground. You see, it's only the Spirit of God that can penetrate this kind of defense. Trying to change our own patterns of living by saying, I'll do better. I'll make a resolution. I'll adopt a new philosophy. Very often that doesn't change a thing. The Spirit of God is driven by absolute truth. He doesn't just persuade us, but He drives other things out by filling a person's life with the power of God. He roots out and fills up. And the person becomes changed in that process. What we used to oppose then becomes our most powerful weapon. Little magazine, Our Daily Bread. So many of you read it faithfully here and we bring, we bring them in and distribute them. It has a great ministry. It carried an item a few years ago that I remember well. When evangelist John, John Wesley, who died in 1791, was returning home from a church service one night, he was robbed. In our terms, he would have been mugged. The thief found his victim to only have a little bit of money and he had some Christian literature. As the bandit was leaving, Wesley called out, Stop, I have something more to give you. <laughs> Don't usually hear that when you get mugged, do you? You forgot something. The surprised robber paused and Wesley said, My friend, you may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, here's something to remember you. Or something to remember. And then some of our hymns come back again this morning. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Good parting shot at a robber. You know, that's a kind of like that. Wesley got his, got his licks in. I thought he was just timid little clergyman, but he says, this guy's not getting away without something. Got my money, but I'm going to give him a few words. The thief hurried away. Wesley prayed that his words might bear fruit. Now, you know what happens in this story. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service, and he was approached by a stranger. And what a surprise to learn that this visitor, now a believer in Christ, is a successful, a successful businessman, but the same guy who robbed him a few years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh no, my friend, Wesley exclaimed, not to me, but to the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. The Spirit of God has the ability to invade the carnal mind and convert it to the mind of Christ. That's the miracle of new birth that we talk so much about, about being born, born again. Now the second thing Christ does is that he tears down the lofty things. Once through the first line of defense, the wall, the Lord assaults the towers. Now the lofty things are mental blocks. Old Fortresses that are wrapped in confining, tangled, often legalistic and, and sometimes religious vines. Towers of the mind erected against God. Here's what I've noticed. 
Ever watch a person go back to the things they left, they left behind? I've watched as people have wandered back into old habits and old ways because they're familiar. The things that they had done before, places where they had been before, under pressure or attack, people resort to humanistic ways of thinking and acting, and many battles are won and lost right there. We often say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, which is just a funny way of saying that old habits are hard to break. You see, when we halt and stop and look back when we're confronted with a test or when the challenge of the Christian life is there, what we may be more afraid of is personal surrender to our Lord. That's where the Lordship of Jesus Christ really begins to work for us. The old ways we know, the new ways are fresh, but they're a little unexplored. We've not walked that path before, and sometimes there's fear about All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. It's a tough way to walk. I thought this week as I prepared about the Vikings. Vikings rode, sailed across the North Atlantic, came through the mist into our world, armed only with their courage, and a few rudimentary navigational aids. I've often thought about what, why would they do that? Why did they even want to wander? The stories are told about them in the sagas, but they refused to be confined by the mental blocks of their time. There were ideas out there, but someone said, it's too far. If you sail too far, you're going to fall off the edge of the world. Maps were written in that period of time that said, no more beyond. As though the world ended at a certain point. Some looked at him and said, it's too dangerous to go out there. You might not come back. They're the mental blocks that the enemy uses to keep us bound. I read a book about that one time called A Whack on the Side of the Head. Sometimes that's what what it takes. I had to stop and ponder something. The Vikings were here roughly, well, more than a thousand years ago. Sailed in the Newfoundland, set up the settlement in Lansom Meadows. Some of you have been, been there. You saw the kind of conditions that they lived in. The Vikings were supposed to have been the toughest people in the world to that point in time. And they came to Newfoundland and lived for a short period of time and left again. And so my hat's off to you for staying. You're tougher than Vikings here. And we've just gone through winter, so pat yourself on the back a little bit and say, the Vikings abandoned here, but I'm staying. Congratulations. Third thing that the Lord does is it captures every thought. That's the way Paul, Paul puts it. He takes thoughts captive. God's desire in assaulting the wall, going after the towers, is found at the end of verse 5. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Get that picture. God wants to transform the old thoughts that defeat us. They're the strong warriors that resided in the old life that we used to have. And when God tears these things down by the power of the Spirit, when He destroys the old habits and the old issues, He he rescues us 
in the process from mediocre living and self-serving interests. And in the process, he sets us free. He talks to whole groups of people, Paul does, and says you're going to be set free from the law of sin and death and made to live by the power of the Spirit. See, the truth is, folks, the city that you and I erect, if it's not built on Christ, is slated for demolition regardless. It's going to get the hammer. It's going to fall. And he wants to take us out of a condemned existence, which is what we have without Christ, and place us in an eternal kingdom that shall not pass away. How can we be changed? If our minds are held captive by all the negative things that have happened to us, if memories of yesterday, like I shared with you, are there, or if something nasty has happened, confining habits hold us prisoners in a city slated for destruction, then we need to turn to God's ammunition. We need to turn to His resources. We need to occupy ourselves with his strategy for redemption. Did you ever notice that when Satan tempted Jesus, he quoted scripture to support his conquest of Jesus' mind? If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, if you're the chosen one, turn these stones into bread. Cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Fall down and worship me. You can bypass the cross and everything can be yours. The truth is, is that Jesus knew the truth of the word of God and he knew how to correctly apply scripture. He knew how to, he knew how to interpret it. You see, the misapplication of scripture is as dangerous as not knowing it at all. And so that's the reason why we have to rightly divide the word of truth, not just divide it. And Paul uses a, midi, a military metaphor because he realizes that the Christian has to be fully informed of the life ahead. It's not a walk. It's not a picnic. It's not 5,000 sitting on the grass plus women and children and eating bread and fish. But really, if I understand Paul's imagery here, it's a declaration of war. And to fight a war, you have to be provided with weapons. And if you fight a spiritual war, you need to be provided with spiritual weapons, not carnal ones. These weapons can't be the common implements because they can only deal with defeating the flesh. You ever grasp what Christ does for us as the captain of our, our salvation, as we, some, we sometimes call him? When the enemy fires his temptations and his suggestions at us, the Spirit of God intercepts them. Takes him captive. He exposes the disguises in which these arrows and missiles for your life and for mine are masked. He foils plans to ambush us. I took some time this week, as you can tell from the slide, and I went through 10 or 12 different ambush scenarios. I looked at how, I looked at places where if they hadn't drawn a red circle in the photo, around where the, where the sniper was hidden, I would not have seen him. Sometimes life is like that. You don't know where it's being fired from. You don't even know that the projectile is, has, got your, has got your name on it or that you're targeted. You see, Christ takes those evil things into captivity and 
spares us from their potential damage. And even should something, something strike us at times, and sometimes things do, sometimes we become, we almost become victims. But we're like, we have to be a little like Job in those kinds of moments. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We have to understand that our enemy is going to war against us, but the weapons we use are not carnal, they're mighty, because they're spiritual weapons that come from the arsenal of God, a divine weaponry designed for us. And so maybe there are people that we know, or maybe we're those people who thought that becoming a Christian is a simple matter of changing sides, going to church or switching churches or whatever. It's more than just a simple prayer. And more than just singing, just as I am. See, Calvary is not about one man dying. It underlies the fact that on the cross, a battle was fought for your soul because your soul is the undying part of you. Your soul is that element of life that God has given you that lives on. So if the Lord is dealing with us, the Lord speaks to our souls. He does so with the best of motives. Maybe you're hearing the voice of the Spirit this morning and the Spirit says, draw close because I've got something I need to offer you for your own protection. I need to give you something for the protection as well of others. So the only way this could be accomplished was for Jesus to provide a sacrifice to do what he said. To destroy the works of the enemy. Also, he uses us. He enlists us in the battle so that through the kind of weaponry God gives us, we gain the ability to destroy the works of the devil, following in the footsteps of Jesus as his disciples. The Spirit was out poured to empower us transform us, to enable us to live. The Spirit lives in you and me. The Spirit lives in believers. He encourages us. He helps us. He points out the troubled areas. He points out the weak spots. Beyond that, Jesus Christ himself is seated at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession for us. You have someone beyond here who's committed to your betterment. And to your eternal destiny. And when we come back next week. I want to offer you some strategies. To give you the sound mind. And the spiritual stamina. You need in these times. I trust that you're convinced today. That you live in a battleground. I trust you know it's true. So many of you that I've begun to know well prove to me just by what life throws at you that there's a spiritual battle to be fought and with Christ on our side we fight it with joy and we fight it with purpose. We fight it because we know the one who holds us is able to hold us until the very end there are times we need to go to the words of Paul when he deals with people at the conclusion to Romans and says, I'm persuaded that there's absolutely nothing in the universe that's able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Hold on to that 
kind of thought. And next week we'll get into some of these strategies that I've 